Well, good morning, everybody. We're going to go ahead and uh, continue our track through 1 Samuel. Uh, so if you would, please uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. I am going to go ahead and I know uh, from the last time I spoke a few weeks ago, uh, we stopped uh, closer towards the end of the chapter, but I'd like to go back and revisit some vital points that I think we kind of moved quickly over that I'd like to go ahead and revisit today, re-examine, go over today, uh, because I, I, I sense that there is a, um, obviously there's a lot of food there uh, that we kind of uh, didn't give it its proper attention. Uh, so instead of reading through the entire chapter, I will begin to break it down as we speak um, through uh, the message here this morning. Let us go ahead and, and open up in a quick prayer. Uh, Father, we just come before you this morning. Lord, we acknowledge your greatness. We acknowledge your sovereignty. Lord, we acknowledge that you are the creator of all things. And in Christ, all things are held together. And Lord, we realize who we are as well as people. Lord, we are in need of you. There is no way, Lord, we would ever have come to you if it wasn't first you yourself making that great reality come into play. Lord, help us this morning to focus upon our Lord and King in the midst of the proclamation of your word. Lord, help us to put every distraction aside and put anything that would be a stumbling block, Lord, away from us, Lord, that we could focus and be in tune for what it is that you would say to us this morning, Lord. For we commit this time into your hands. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here we have seen how the crown rolls from one head to another. The head of Saul to the head of a shepherd boy by the name of David, the son of Jesse. As we have read, David, who was anointed king in the midst of his brothers, soon comes to the rescue of his people by running a food errand for his father, bringing supplies to his brothers who were found cowering under the oppressive onslaught of a Philistine giant, who not only taunts and harasses the army of Israel, but speaks against the living God. David, by the guiding hand of God, learned the ways of a warrior during his years as a shepherd boy, defending his sheep from the mouth of lions and bears. David cried out in Psalm 144.1 when he said, Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Isaiah 54.13 references this as well. He says, All your sons will be taught or will be trained by the Lord. 
and the well-being of your sons will be great. In John chapter 6, verse 45, it says, They shall be taught by God. And this, as you know, is a new covenant promise. In Jeremiah 31, 33, we read that, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And 1 Samuel chapter 13, 14 seems to indicate prophetically of what kind of man that David was and what he would become. In 1 Samuel 16, 18 it says, Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, <clears throat> prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. David was not only a, a skillful player and a man of valor and of war, he was also, what the Bible says, that he was prudent in speech, meaning he had good judgment and restraint, especially in his conduct of speech. He was also handsome. But the most important aspect of David's life from the beginning of his, of his installation as king or the beginning of his very anointing from Samuel was the fact that the Lord was most certainly with him. 1 Samuel 13, 14 says that David was a man after God's own heart, which is outlined throughout Scripture, especially through the book of Psalms. It says that David was humble. He says in Psalm 62, 9, he says, Low-born men are but a breath. The high-born are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together, they are only a breath. David was reverent. As we read in Psalm 18, verse 3, he says, I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise. I am saved from my enemies. David was respectful. He says in Psalms 31, 9, Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and my body with grief. David was also trusting. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? David was loving. He says in Psalms 18.1, he says, I love you, Lord, my strength. David was devoted, as we read in Psalm 4, chapter 4, verse 7, he says, You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. 
David had recognition of his God. He says, I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell you of all your wonders. David was faithful. He said, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David was obedient. He says, give me understanding, and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. And David's greatest feature was that he was a repentant man. It says in Psalm 25, 11, he says, for the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Can we all say that? This morning, would that be the outline and characteristic of our own lives? How many times have we said it? And if we haven't said it, I think we should. Every day of our lives, reaching out to God, asking Him to forgive us of our iniquity, knowing that our iniquity and our sin is great. You know, the first time that I truly recognized the greatness of Christ is when I understood the absolute enormity and weight of my sin. When I saw my sin as it's characterized and detailed and defined in Scripture, when I saw the sin of my life and the greatness of it, the folly of it, my sin became, as the Bible says in Romans, exceedingly sinful. And then when I looked to my beloved Savior, I saw the exceedingly grace of God. Only Christ could satisfy the depth of my darkness and sin upon himself. But we see the complete antithesis of Saul. Saul wasn't humble. He was prideful. He wasn't reverent. He was irreverent. He wasn't loving. He was actually hateful. He was not devoted. He was disloyal. He didn't give recognition to God, but to himself. He was unfaithful, not faithful. He was disobedient instead of obedient. He was unrepentant opposed to repentant. Saul was not a man after God's own heart, but instead a man after his own interest. This is why he lost the kingdom to David. It was all about Saul, right? David, who came upon the scene not knowing that Israel had been tormented for the last 40 days by the taunts and the shouts of Goliath. This had been going on for almost a month and a half. Just think about that. You guys know how long like a a month is, right? Think about almost a month and a half gone by. And you've got this giant, this man, constantly standing out there blaspheming God. And taunting the army of Israel for a month and a half. How much could you tolerate? How much could you put up with? How much longer could this go on? How long do we wait as the people of God, as we see all around as people taunting, blaspheming God? Even so much is bringing a complete reproach. How much more within the church? Do we tolerate when we see things happening within the body of believers that makes us cower and cringe today? 
How much do we see in our own hearts, in our own lives? The spookiness, right, of our own sin. Have you ever had that moment where you just kind of had the, a realization of how just utterly depraved we really are as people? I have those quite often, actually. Where I'm like, I get it, but I don't get it. <laughs> I am vile. I'm radically depraved. I just don't understand how God, you could save such a deeply, radically depraved wretch sinner like me. How is this even possible? Well, it's possible because God became a man just like me and represented me upon the cross in my place and took on the full wrath of God for me. Remember, the wrath of God wasn't circumnavigated around us is that we were punished in Christ on the cross. When Christ was punished upon that cross, he was be punished as if it was me. He became Jeff upon that cross. He became Skyler upon that cross. He became Spencer upon that cross and bore the full weight of wrath as if it was me getting the wrath of God poured out upon me, but they poured it upon God in the flesh instead. But being God, the Bible says the grave couldn't hold him down. A grave can keep a dead man down, a sinner down, pull us right down into the lowest belly of hell because we're sinful. But you see, the grave can't keep a sinless man down. And he reversed death. And he rose from the grave, defeating death, hell, and the grave on behalf of his people. And if you want to escape death, hell, and the grave... You put your faith in Jesus Christ, who has accomplished that on your behalf. Very, very important to understand that we have to understand the gospel of Christ. You must have a pure view, untainted view of the gospel for it to make any difference in your life. False gospels don't do anything to you. They build man up. The true gospel breaks man down and shows the reality of the one that we should be building up and totally exalting. And that is Jesus Christ alone. For a month and a half, they were listening to these taunting sounds of this giant provoking the people, looking for a fight. And this whole time they're probably thinking, "What? what would you have been thinking? We have a king, don't we? Somewhere in the midst of this trembling, panic, panicky crowd. Is he out here anywhere? He should be jumping in and dealing with this giant, whether he wins or loses, for the respect of yourself, for the glory of Christ, and the respect of the people of God. Get in there and fight, even if it costs you your life. But you know what? A lot of times... People love the name tags, don't they? They love the titles. They love to be called certain names, bishop, pastor, whatever it may be. No problem if people want to be called those names. That's perfectly fine and acceptable. But the point is when we, when we rely on a title but we have no character to back it, there's a huge issue there. Call me king, call me king until Goliath comes on the battlefield, right? And call me a coward. Because your name doesn't match up with your behavior. Same with Christians, right? We see a lot of people that come by name of Christian, but they're not Christian. At least in a biblical sense. Maybe an Americanized one, but that's not one that's true. 
If your Christianity isn't defined by what we read in Scripture and in the Holy Bible, then it's not really biblical Christianity at all. It's just a counterfeit. It's a fake. We'll never want that to be said of us. But the Bible says in verse 11, it says that Saul, Saul, just remember, and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, and they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 24 says that they were dreadfully afraid. They weren't just afraid. They were dreadfully afraid. And then in 28, some of the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man come up? In other words, okay, we're afraid, but it's justified. Haven't you seen this guy? Haven't you seen this man who has come up? I mean... Who wouldn't be afraid at this reality of such a giant? Anyone coming upon this scene would have been mortified and would have joined in on this panic-infected scenario. But it wasn't so with David. On the contrary, on the contrary with David, he was shocked to say the least as to why this arrogant, God-hating fool could get away with speaking in such a way. He wasn't shocked at how scary he was. He was shocked. He was shocked at the reality. How in the world have you let this gone on for so long? Kind of like Nehemiah when he came through Jerusalem as he surveyed Jerusalem. And, he, and it, it was, apparently it was a whole entire generation had passed by and he saw the gates and they were burnt. His problem wasn't so much that the gates were burnt and the destruction, so to speak. He just wondered how an entire generation could go by with the exposure of the temple and where it was at the time. And Nehemiah says, why have we allowed this for an entire generation to be in such disarray? It's the same kind of shockness and trauma that they go through when it's the shock and trauma can either be like, towards this enemy or the shock and trauma could be I cannot believe you're going to let this this guy continually to behave like this and 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 rebel against God and bring a reproach to God's people and never do anything about it you know and it wasn't bad enough to be harassed and provoked by Goliath. But David now, as we see in verse 28, was being harassed as well by his brothers as to why he even came to the battlefield. So it's one thing, right? We all understand when someone's pretty scary and spooky of not being able to stand up to this reality. But number two, it's quite another whole animal altogether to be able to have this kind of harassment come from your own family. So he had a double harassment going on at the same time. As a matter of, matter of fact, in verse 28, his brother said to him, why did you of all people come down here? And this we see is jealousy. You know, we got to remember that David was anointed right in the midst of his brethren. There could be a lot of factors there. Remember Joseph, 
right? The dreams that he had and the jealousy of his brothers put him into that well. And it could very well be, it's only speculation, we don't know for sure, but you can probably guess that they were jealous for the reality that they weren't anointed, but he was. So now he comes down to the battlefield, right? And he didn't come down there to fight. He didn't come down there looking for a fight. He didn't come down there to incite his brothers. He came down there to encourage his brothers. But instead, what does he get from them? He gets their jealousy. They're more concerned with their pride than they are dealing with this giant. And then they said, with whom have you left those sheep in the wilderness? That's very, that's very belittling. Because they're accusing him of as being unfaithful to their father's commands. In other words, you should be doing your chores. Have you done your chores? Why are you here? Shouldn't you be, be, be back doing your chores? I mean, it's a belittling. We see with jealousy, remember, anytime someone's jealous of you for Christ's sake, there will always be this idea behind it that's based upon their own insecurity. Number two, there's always belittling there. There's always this idea of minimizing your authority, minimizing these things in your life by ad hominem arguments, by attacking your character. And then the third part was, he said, I know your pride and the insolence. Insolence actually means rude and disrespectful. They're calling him rude and disrespectful for coming down there. He says, I know the insolent and the pride of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And then we have false accusations. We see jealousy, we see belittling, right? And we see false accusations. Who else dealt with these in their ministry? Our Lord Christ dealt with these issues as well. Maybe not as exactly they're outlined here in the life of David, but I can tell you this, one of the main reasons the Pharisees wanted to murder him, the Bible says, because of envy. Because of envy. The belittling and the false accusations. I mean, David's reasons for coming to the front lines of battle were simply obeying his father's orders, and being diligent in bringing supplies to those who were in need. In verse 17 it says, And carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand and see how your brothers fare. See how they're doing. See if they're okay. And bring back news of them. Or as some translations say, take their pledge. What this actually meant was, uh, during the days of these battles that would take place, um, uh, someone would be sent down to the front lines of battle and what they would do is they would check on all of those who were in battle and they would take a momentum from them. It could be hair clippings, it could be something, even fingernail clippings at some point to bring back to their family to reassure their family that their husband was okay. And this was a pledge and this was, this was the idea behind it. He was going there not only nourishing the army but he was getting from each one a pledge to bring back to their families, whoever they were, to let them know your son is okay in battle, as of now anyway. And this was the whole idea here, is that David was really ministering to the people out there on the front lines. In verse 29 says, and David says to his brothers after all these false accusations, he says, what have I done now? You ever found yourself saying that to somebody? I have. 
So what does that insinuate? It implies that, that this wasn't the first time that his motives and his character had been under, ta- under attack by his family. You see this here. What have I done now? You can only imagine what they're implying too. In Luke 4.24, we see this as well. When Christ says, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. He's implying this. Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. This is a great reflection and a type here. Even with Joseph, even the life of others as you see. It's not only that, you know, because it says, you know, in John 1.11, it says that Christ, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. In Isaiah 53.3, it says he is despised and he's rejected by men. But there seems to be something here in connection with his family, right? With people that you know. I mean, I can take pretty much anything from the outside world. You could talk about me however you like, call me any name in the book, whatever you want to do, right? But when it comes from your own family, it hits differently, doesn't it? When they don't trust you or they're accusing you of stuff or they're making fun of you or they're saying things or gossiping, maybe they're slandering you, maybe they're just completely rejecting you all together. Nothing hurts worse. Nothing hurts worse than being rejected by your own family. And nothing hurts worse in the church of God as well to be rejected by your own family. And I would say that much today as we see in contemporary American Christendom, that we would be rejected by what a lot of what we see out there. A lot of it is self-help, humanism, life enhancement, your best life now. When in reality, it's not what we're called to. We're called to a crucified life. And a lot of that we don't see, what we see in majority of American Christianity is a selfish, spoiled attitude like we're entitled, entitled to everything that we want. And if we don't get it, we call it persecution. But the reality is, is that we need to live in such a way that our lives would most certainly look as those of self-denial. Now looking to get, Jesus said all who follow after me must deny themselves, not help themselves. It's a big difference there. Deny yourself. Die, he says. I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says that Christ bids all men to come and die. Not come and get. We've got to die to that attitude. In America, it's very difficult. Even I'll even be totally upfront with you guys. I always have been. You know, It's hard on me even. I never really realized just how spoiled I was until I get a chance to look at other countries around the world who are suffering for Christ's sake. And I look at my life and I'm getting upset because someone put pickles on my hamburger at the drive-thru. I didn't want them. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just sad because I don't think we tend to realize how good that we have it and how plump and prosperous we really are. And I think that 
You know, I think it was Richard Worm, Wormbrand said, you guys may have heard me tell this story. I'm sorry for being redundant. Um, but he was, you know, he was placed in a prison, an underground prison in Romania for 17 years of being poked with hot steaks, fed to the rats, all types of things. They tortured him unbelievably, and he was in solitary confinement. And he said, one of the ways that I stayed alive while I was in prison is that a lot of things that I did in the life prior to my imprisoning is that I was able to translate into my prison life, such as fasting, not eating, learning to temper my body. As Paul says, I keep my body into submission. I beat it into submission because he understood the power of discipleship in this world because when it does come to that day and come to that hour, that you may come in contact with someone that may want to take you out, may want to take you out of plump Christianity in America and put you into some rotting prison somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Who knows where it is, right? Could be in Washington, D.C. How are you going to be able to make it if you've never been disciplined in your Christian life? How are you going to be able to allow yourself to be able to endure under that kind of tribulation and persecution if you haven't tempered your body to be able to handle that? And what he did say, um, Richard Wormbrand did say, he did say that most of the pastors who expired early in the game were those that were not used to these disciplines. They weren't used to fasting. They weren't used to uh, having a lifestyle of self-denial, a lifestyle of the cross. He said nothing much changed for him except for the torture that he was put through. Because of his prayer life, because of the life he lived, he was able to endure 17 years of that and come out and still be fruitful, still love Christ, and still preach his holy name to the world that was around him. David was rejected by his own family. Christ himself was rejected, ultimately, as we would see, by the family of God in his day. But as we know, the scripture foretold that the Messiah would crush the head of the serpent. And I like what we read here as well, is that in Ephesians 2.14, in dealing with David, dealing with Goliath, dealing with the situation of his day, uh, really, is, <clears throat> really is a reflection of what we read in Ephesians 2.14. It says, For he himself, Christ, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken, broken down the wall, the middle wall of separation. He did this to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace. What do you mean by that? Well, we see Goliath. What does he represent? Yes, I believe he does represent a world system, a tyrannical view of government, but I think he, he represents the darkness of our sin. This impossibility. It wasn't a possible thing. It was an impossibility that we see happening right before our eyes. And everybody saw that. Everybody can see a basically a little tiny person, right, going to have to fight this giant. I mean, it was impossible. But this is what God chooses for his people, that he had to come tumbling 
down. And David says twice, he says, is there not a cause? Then he turned from from him toward another and said the same thing. He said it twice. And they still rallied against him and raged against him. But he wasn't going to be dictated by his ungodly, selfish, prideful family. He is going to be dictated by the God that he knew so well being out in the field as a shepherd to his sheep. He knew God. And that's just the thing. You see, if we would spend more time getting to know God, we would be so ruffled by everything that goes on in the world. When people reject us or people push us away, people call us names, we get so offended we retaliate the same way just like the world. Do you realize that if we were truly in communion with our God and knew where we sat positionally, that these things wouldn't affect us the way that they do? And we're all guilty of it. But David shows us as an example. As Christ spent time out in the mountains praying to the Father, knowing full well his mission, David as well, out in the fields for long periods of time, doing the menial work, of a shepherd taking care of sheep. But in the process of this, and the beauty of this, he had a relationship with God that did not deter him from doing what needed to be done. You see, when you know God, you're not afraid of any giants. You're not afraid of anyone. See, the most scariest man in battle is the one who doesn't care if they die. It was said of William Wallace, William the Conqueror, you want to know why they were so feared? Not because of their size and the brutality of their fighting skills, because they didn't care if they died. It's terrifying. That's terrifying. You put someone in doesn't care, I don't care if I die. He's going to wipe out everybody in his path because he doesn't care about his own life. And it's the same with us. There's so much within our own life, so much self-preservation, that we haven't died to self, therefore we're afraid of everything. We're afraid of our own shadow. We're afraid to get in the battle. We're afraid to do anything because we're afraid it just could happen that you could lose your life. What about your reputation? Some people go to hell for their reputation. What about your reputation? Are you afraid to lose your reputation for Christ? Do you always have to defend yourself when everybody says something about you? Are you willing to die to that? Are you willing to go to the grave with that? I mean, we all should. I should as well. And this is really what's being exemplified and being shown here is that David is more concerned with the cause of Christ than he was being put into a harness by his brother's words. They weren't going to stop him because he knew God. Now it says this, Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul and sent for him. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Let no man's heart fail because of him. He didn't say, don't let your heart fail. He said, let no man's heart fail. Do you see what's going on here? David is bringing comfort to the people. It isn't even about himself. He's coming right out of the gates and going, listen, Don't let anybody here fear. I've got you. 
And David knows full well it's not him. But it's God who's going to accomplish this task. But David, as you can see, is a true servant, which he claims to be here. A true servant will, will go and fight this Philistine. A true servant cares about the people and not his own agenda. He cares about the people. That is his agenda. Notice that. And that's always the first point you should see in anyone that calls himself a leader of any kind of group. Does he care about the people? Or does he just care about his own agenda? Is he some person, personality-driven person who only cares about himself, cares about how many people like him or look up to him, and no concern for the people whatsoever? A true servant should be able to say, do not let no man's heart fail, because our God is greater and will destroy this man then we read in verse 33 it says and Saul said to David you are not able David you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are a youth and he is a man of war from his youth let me just remind you from scripture or let me just remind you from the Bible the phrase do not be afraid is written in the Bible guess how many times 365 times That's right. A friendly reminder for every day of the year. God says, do not fear. We fear a lot. I fear a lot. You know, I hate it. But it just constantly pushes me towards our Lord. Because I know in him, we don't have to fear anything. You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are a youth and he is a man of war from his youth. I'd like to remind you what Paul said to Timothy uh, in 1 Timothy 4.12. He says, let no man despise your youth, but be an example. Be an example to all of Israel this day, David. Be saying to Timothy, be an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in speech, in faith, and in purity. Your youth doesn't matter, as you're going to see here in a few moments. The same with Timothy. But what things that do matter in all of this is you're going to be a good example Saul has not been a good example at all. Israel has not been a good example at all. But I'll say one thing for sure. David was a good example, and so was Timothy. Great example. And this is the key feature. He says, you're not able to go against this Philistine. I'd like to remind you of one thing this morning that's key to all of this, and will maybe rest your weary minds at some level. Being unable is a good thing. Being unable is a good thing. The Bible says in Ephesians 3.20, our God is able. Our God is able. We're unable. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think in our minds. He says, you are a youth. He is a man of war from his youth. You know, it didn't make sense. None of this made any sense to this fact that we've got this boy going out and doing a man's job. That's exactly what's occurring here at this point. It wasn't practical. 
It wasn't sensible. But neither was the jaw of a donkey that slew thousands upon thousands, heaps upon heaps in the hands of Samson either. Right? Or what about a boat constructed in the middle of the desert? Very impractical. What a senseless thing to do. Fools building a big gigantic boat in the middle of the desert. How impractical is that? Oh, it wasn't impractical at all. Because God used both of these seemingly impractical means to bring about great destruction upon his enemies. Just as a small just as God had used a small shepherd boy to bring down a giant. 1 Corinthians 1.27 said, This is God's way. What do you mean? It says, But God has chosen what? The foolish things, well, I guess that would be me, of this world to confound the wise. And God has chosen what? The weak things, that would be me, right? To do what? The weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. It's God's way. 1 Corinthians 1.28 says, And vile things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen. Yea, and all things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are. You see, it's God's way. It's God's way to use the weak to destroy the wise, or the weak to destroy the strong, to weak to destroy those who you know, the, the, the foolish things to destroy the wise. Why is this? Because 1 Corinthians one twenty nine says that no flesh should glory in His presence. God isn't going to put up with it. And God didn't put up with it. Because He gloried in His presence for what? A month and a half. And now it's coming to an end. Luke 16.15 says, which is highly esteemed among men is what? An abomination with God. Luke 3 6 says, In all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. This very moment, all of those standing there are about ready to see the salvation of God. It is coming in to play. As Christ hung upon the cross, all men. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. But at this point, all men were going to see the salvation of God. David is convinced by Saul, or convinces Saul, that he can kill Goliath. Claiming that he killed both lions and bears to protect the flock, David was certainly prepared to take this giant to the woodshed. Saul said to David, and this is interesting, he says, go and the Lord be with you. So interesting here, you, 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 you look at this, and I've always pondered this because, you know, here Saul was really a, a coward, to be honest with you. He should have been out there doing what David's doing, but he wasn't. But David, because David was such a submissive person, and this is what makes such a great king, because he was very submissive and he understood how to submit to authority. So your submission to authority isn't determined whether the authority screws up or not. Now, if the authority is telling you to sin or do something unlawful, then you, will, you, you, you refuse and you disobey. But when your authority is over you, 
we are still in submission to the authority, whether that's someone on the job or whether it be a president or whatever that may be, we are called and commanded by God to be submissive. And look at this. This tells us something about David's character. He understood authority even though the kingdom was taken from Saul and given to David. And it's interesting here because um, in 1 Samuel 24, 6, he said to his men, David said to his men, he said, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. This is way past the kingdom being removed from Saul. But David just being the man that he is, wasn't even willing to touch one hair on Saul's head, even though Saul's time had completely passed and his life was in the gutter. David still submitted to the authority. He didn't want to touch him because he didn't want to touch the anointed of God. Just give you any idea of what kind of man he was. So you can tell me how great all anybody is in this world, but if you can't submit to authority and he's a rebel at heart, he's worthless. If you can't submit to God's ordained authority, there's a huge problem with you. Believe that or not. You know, it says women should be in submissive, be in submission to their husbands. And we always got to we always got to qualify that, don't we, when we say that verse? We always got to let people know we're not talking about his tyrannical view of women. It's not slavery over women by any means. It's just God's order and how he has things done. Yeah, but my husband doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He does this wrong. There is nothing in Scripture that says that you are allowed freedom not to submit to your husband even when he's in sin, even when he's not leading correctly. You have no right based upon your own view and autonomy to figure out a better way. The reason why God tells you to submit to that person is not for that person's sake at all, but for your sanctification. Do you realize that? The greatest sanctifying thing that can ever happen to you is that God gives you a spouse. They're the most sanctifying reality in your life to conform and change you and transform you more into the image of Christ. That's true. It goes with anything, though, even at our job, at our workplaces. People want to get snotty and rebel against their employers. God hates that. Well, I'm preaching the gospel. He didn't call you to, he, your employer didn't hire you to preach the gospel. He hired you to put the, put the roof on his home. You see, I understand, we have to understand that we can't violate one commandment for another and expect God to bless us. We are to do what God commands of us because why? It's for our own good and for the glory of God that we allow these things to happen in our life. It's called adversity, brothers and sisters. It's called being challenged. It's called looking at something and going, no way, but dying to your own agenda and submitting to God's way and doing what is right. So with that being said, I didn't want to leave on a note. If it soured you, I apologize, but that is the truth of scripture. We're going to go ahead and pray and I'll finish the rest of this up hopefully next Sunday. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for our time together today. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the life of David. Lord, as we can look at this scenario played out before our eyes, and Lord, it just makes us call upon your name even more because it causes us to look to the greater one, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who defeated the Goliath of our sin and has brought us into the kingdom freely by his grace. 
Lord, help us to recognize this today. If there's nothing else that we remember this sermon, let us remember Christ taken upon the Goliath and the enormity of our sin upon Himself that we could go free. That we could go free to do what? To worship His holy name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.